Well, now we've got to add a new speaker system to our budget. Oh, my word, you guys just blew those speakers right out. Uh, <laughs> that was awesome. So good. Now I'd like to give you a song. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Right? Election season. Yes. So excited. We get these awesome ads on TV and social media, right? You get, to, you get these questionable news reports about what's going on. You get October surprises. I mean, you even get like, like gifts, like surprises. You get supposedly government interfering in our, our government, which can I just say something? Just, just a little FYI. Governments have always interfered with other governments' elections. Um, they do it, we do it, everyone does it. Yeah, election. We're going to do a series next three weeks called In God We Trust. And our goal is to try to give some biblical perspective on this whole election cycle, on voting, and that type of thing. So what I did is I decided to go to the two wisest men in our church and uh, this morning, and I'm like, hey, I'm just kind of curious, uh, Greg, Dave, how would you guys intro this, uh, you know, this message? And after some very eloquent profundity, um, the, uh, there was some you know, interesting um, ideas, there was some um, interesting concepts and thoughts, and hey, one of the wisest men in our church, hey, there he is. Um, so anyways, they had this you know, conversation. Greg is a little more, a little older and wiser. Uh, Dave is a little younger and wiser. So there's, you know, conversation. But here's the one thing they agreed on that I needed to make sure I got across right at the beginning. And so I want to be faithful to that because I think it's a good point. That's this. As Christians... The reason why we're called Christians is because early on in Scripture, they were called Christ ones. People who were following Christ were called Christ ones. A disciple means one who is a follower of. So a disciple of Christ is one who follows Christ. Paul says that we are ambassadors of Christ. And so when we place our faith in Christ, when we get adopted in his family, we become a child of God. We no longer represent ourselves. Maybe this is probably the best way to phrase it within what we're talking about this morning. As we live our lives and as we consider voting, we no longer represent ourselves. We represent Christ. We represent God. Uh, we'll look more at this in, in the, the body of the message, if you want to call it that, some of the things we're going to look at. But our responsibility is to point people to Christ and to help them know who he is, how he operates, what he's all about, and that type of thing. And so as we get into the message, that's going to be the, the focal point of it, but I want to start out with that so that we're all kind of getting the same idea here that we live in a country where we, where we get to vote, but we need to vote and live our lives in a way that represents Christ, not ourselves or what we think. Because here's the deal. 
from Jesus' day up until our country was founded, Christians lived and operated under dictatorships. It might have been a, a, an emperor, it might have been a king, it might have been a, a dictator who took over control, whatever the case, up until the United States, Christians had always operated under dictatorships. There was never anybody um, free to worship however they wanted to worship without being persecuted for it. So one king would be uh, one religion and another king would be another religion, and then this king would overtake this king, which, by the way, transference of power back before the United States came along was always, most always, violent. So one king would overtake another king, and when that happened, everybody under that king now had to change their religion. There was, there was a, a forced religion changed, change. And they were typically violent, uh, even if a family member took over for another family member, the other family members oftentimes tried to take over that power. Kings and their families uh, would try to violently take over power. But when George Washington handed off power to John Adams, it was the first time that there was a peaceful transfer of power based on the vote of people. Say what you want to say about our country. That's unique. That's special. That's something that we should all be hoping to continue and use for the sake of Christ. When the founders put the nation together, their goal was not to impose upon everybody else Christianity. Their goal was to allow people to worship as they desired. They have already come from countries where they were told how they were to worship. So they didn't want that for our country. They wanted people to, to worship however and whoever they wanted. But they knew that it needed to be built on the moral teachings of Jesus Christ. Because it's only Christianity where the God of that religion, if you want to call it that, doesn't force people into a relationship with him. What he does is he wants to show himself, and he wants to show himself through his people, so that people would just want to know this God. And so it wasn't that they were going to force people into Christianity. They wanted people to share or to, to worship whoever they wanted to worship, but they were going to do so on the foundation of Christianity because Christianity allows for that while showing who this awesome God is. In fact, one of the things that, <clears throat> we're going to watch a video here in a little bit, but one of the things that was kind of interesting uh, later on in this interview that you won't see, but you can find out. Everybody's heard of the Jefferson Bible, right? And so I've always been told that the Jefferson Bible, Jefferson didn't like all the miracles. He was a deist, and so he didn't like all the miracles of Jesus, so he cut those all out, and what was left was his Bible. David Barton, who we're going to be listening to, he actually says, no, that's not what happened. What he wanted to do was he wanted to have a succinct, small copy of the, all the teachings, the moral teachings of Jesus Christ. So that when, they, um, when the missionaries went to the Indians, they didn't know, hey, need to have all this other stuff initially. They needed to know who, who Jesus was and what he had come to do and how society should be lived. And then, I think he said, like, for the next 45 or 50 years, anybody who came into government 
we're handed this and says, if you want to keep your life out of trouble, live this way, which is kind of an interesting thing. Again, not forcing people to worship God, but saying, listen, there are some, there's some moral teaching here that if you apply these things, the simple thing of treat others as you'd like to be treated type of thing, right? Do unto others as you'd have them do to you. That kind of teaching is something that they felt everybody should have because it wasn't about forcing people. It was about showing who Christ is, who God is to others. I just want to, for the sake of you know, reminding us, um, David Barton, um, who works with um, wall builders, it's an organization that helps defend our history. It's not about immigration, as some people would think, um, but it's about just defending our history and making sure people understand what our history is. Um, he's interviewed at a church, and so we're just going to watch a few minutes of this interview that I think you guys might find pretty interesting. Particularly for us, we look at our religious foundations, our moral foundations, and really it's been torn down in America. It's attacked even our constitutional foundations. We think those are worth rebuilding. Yeah, that's right. So as it relates to, I'm, I'm going to set us up, we're going to dive right in. And man, I hope, I hope you will listen, and I hope, I hope you will be encouraged um, as it relates to just the, the, the faith of a lot of the founders that were there. But I think a lot of us wonder, hey, weren't they just a bunch of deists? Mm -hmm. They were a bunch of slave-owning racists mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, I'm not even sure there's room for them in heaven. And a, a lot of us have heard messages like that our entire life. And I'm, I'm kind of over uh, uh, being dramatic with that. But when it comes to the founding fathers, weren't they deists? Let's start with their faith. Like, weren't a lot of them deists? Franklin, Jefferson. It's interesting. I have two pictures up here of founding fathers. There's probably about 250 founding fathers all total. You got 56 who signed the Declaration, picture on the left. 55 who wrote the Constitution, picture on the right. Then you got the 90 guys who did the Bill of Rights and other governors and generals. So about 250. And so I can be at a college, a university, a business group, military base, and I can show this picture on the left, the signers of the Declaration who did the Declaration of Independence. And I, 56 guys up there say, who can you name? And every college I've been to and every group I've been to, they get Jefferson and Franklin. Only one time have I had anybody get a third guy. Everybody gets Jefferson and Franklin. Isn't it interesting we've all been trained to recognize the two least religious founding fathers out of the 56? 29 of those guys came from, from what we would call seminaries or Bible schools in their day. They came from schools that trained ministers. A number of those guys were in ministry. A number of those guys did active ministry type of work and actually have a, a bunch of their, their religious works here. It's things that we just don't much know about anymore. Um, if I can, I'm just going to walk over here for a second. For example, you take these signers of the Declaration. Let me just start with this little book right here. That, guys, is a Bible. That is from 1798. That is the largest Bible printed in America at that time. And nine signers of the Declaration helped fund that Bible. Now, that doesn't seem like deists would be willing to do that. Uh, you take this book right here. This book is from 1767. It is the first purely American hymn book, the first book in America to have musical notation. And it's done by this signer of the Declaration right there who was a choir leader and a church minister. Or I could take this Bible right here that's the first mass-produced Bible in America, produced by the first Bible Society in America, which was started by this founding father right here, Benjamin Rush. He is also considered the father of public schools under the Constitution. 
which might make it interesting that he did this piece in 1791, giving a dozen reasons we would never take the Bible out of public schools, that the Bible would always be our number one textbook. Or I could go to this guy right here, the Reverend Dr. John Witherspoon, who has more than a dozen volumes of gospel sermons. This is the Bible he did, 1791, the first family Bible ever done in America, done by Reverend Dr. John Witherspoon. I can go to this tall guy right here. His name is Charles Thompson. He did the first translation of the Greek Septuagint in English. It's called the Thompson Bible. You can still get it at bookstores today, considered the most scholarly translation done in English of that Bible. Uh, I can just keep going through guy after guy here. Let me jump over to John Hancock for a moment. Right here you have John Hancock. This is, he was governor of Massachusetts. This is one of his proclamations. 22 times he called a state to pray. Now, this is a proclamation for a day of fasting, humiliation, and prayer. And he has the state of Massachusetts praying and fasting that if anyone doesn't know Christ, that they will come to know Christ. I mean, this is the kind of stuff we have from so many of these guys, but those aren't the names we hear today. We hear the the Jefferson and and the Franklin, and even they weren't anti-Christian. I mean, what they did, Franklin, as governor of Pennsylvania, actually came up with a plan to raise church attendance in the state. And Jefferson, as president of the United States, actually did treaties for Native American tribes that gave missionaries and money to bring the gospel to them. One final thing I'll show you is this is one of the rarest books in the world. This book is the first Bible ever printed in the English language. It was done by the Continental Congress. And in the front of this Bible, it has the endorsement of the Continental Congress. And this Bible was described as, quote, a neat edition of the Holy Scriptures for the use of schools. So Continental Congress endorsing a Bible for the use of schools, which is why this Supreme Court case in 1844 gave a unanimous 8-0 decision that says if you're going to be a government-run school, you will teach the Bible in schools. We're not going to have a government-run school that won't teach the Bibles. Now, again, the, the, the point in showing that was it's not about enforcing or forcing people into a, a religion. It was about influencing people. So you can go see more of his stuff on these websites that he's got. Um, but I, I thought it was interesting that uh, he, you know, he uses actual writings of these founders. So he's not, you know, interpreting things the way he wants. He's just using their words for them. But I thought it was interesting that when I Googled his name, I used Google as a search engine, and Google, Google decided to tell me what I should think of him. And so the, Google describes him as an activist, which he's not, he's a historian. Um, and he's, I'm sure he does some other, has done some other work in his life, but he's, right now he's kind of focused on this history thing. Um, Wikipedia, which anybody can pour into Wikipedia, so it's not the best source, but they called his um, information unorthodox, which is kind of weird because it is, it's orthodox. It's, it's what our com- country was built on. It's the, it's the people that were involved in it. The uh, Southern, um, uh, Southern Poverty Law Center uh, there was, there's was the next one down, and clicked on there, isn't a picture of him on, his, on the left, his name, David Barton, um, his job, historian, and ideology, uh, their ideolo- ideology they put under him, would, like to me, I would think ideology maybe Christian, you know, something like that, but they put anti-LGBTQ, uh, which I thought, doesn't make any sense, why would, you, why would you do that? My point is this, when we're researching anything, but when we're researching 
politicians, when we're researching uh, history of our country, um, political parties, we need to be looking at the, the writings and the words of the people who we're researching. It doesn't help us to go to Google. It doesn't help us to listen to the news agencies. It doesn't help us to go to um, you know, mainstream media or um, social media or you know, anything. We need to go to the horse, right? And, and to hear what the person has said, to see how the person has voted, to see where their party is at. We need to be researching and doing our due diligence to know where these different politicians stand um, and not just take everybody else's word for it. Well, despite what you know, the world tells us now about our founding and, and what we see, um, the, the founders wanted our country to be built on uh, the moral teachings of Jesus Christ because it's the, his teachings are the only ones that really value other people and value and respect other people. So as, as Christians, not just because our nation was founded on Christianity, but even more important, because we're Christians, because we're followers of Christ, we're going to answer uh, two questions this morning. One is, should Christians vote? And the second one is, if so, how should they vote? And so the first one is, I say, and I believe Scripture backs it up, is that should Christians vote? Yes, Christians should vote. And if you look at Matthew 5, here's what Jesus says about we who are followers of God or followers of Christ. Now, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount, so Jesus' first major sermon that he does is three chapters long in Matthew, and it's just a great message. It's probably the most well-known of his. And he just gets done saying, here are the 11 or so characteristics, the Beatitudes, you might be familiar with that word. Here's the 11 characteristics of those who are followers of God. Here's what your life will look like. Here's how you will respond to the world. Why? Because you, Christian, we're using it for us today, are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. He says, you, Christian, are the light of the world. Well, I thought Jesus was the light of the world. Yes. Now through us. He went back to the Father, Holy Spirit's here, and now through us. We are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. It's not, it's not the purpose for a light. It's not, a, it's not the reason why we've placed our faith in Christ, to be hidden, to be hiding, to be in our homes. But on a lampstand, it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that you may, they may see your good works. Again, good works not for salvation, but because of salvation. And glorify, which has the idea of shining, glorify your Father who is in heaven. So Christians should vote because we are salt and light. We've placed our faith in Christ. We are no longer representing ourselves, we're representing Christ to the world around us. And so in our lives, how we live our lives, in our families, in our neighborhoods, at our workplace, and in how we vote because we have the privilege to do so, to, to interfere, if I could use that word, with our, with our uh, politics, with our government, and it's the right way to interfere, us telling our government how it's supposed to operate. And so 
doing life God's way, living life as Christ lived, is, is salt. And so what is salt? Salt has a couple of different characteristics to it, but the one we're going to focus on this morning is the fact that it's a, a preservative. So they would put salt, and when the first century people heard this, they knew that when he said salt, it meant that they were to preserve culture, preserve society, uh, preserve how God wanted society to operate. Again, not forcing himself on anybody, but through Christians doing life God's way, drawing people to him so they would come to him of, his, of their own free will. And so we preserve the culture. There are certain... Um, cultural laws, societal laws that God has placed into our society that when we do life his way, his blessing is on us. His blessing is on Christians and non-Christians alike. Why? So that non-Christians can hear from Christians as to why he's blessing our nation and they would be drawn to Christ for salvation. Not forced, but brought to him through their own free will and desire to know this God who's loved them, who's died for them. And so in that, we need to live our lives in such a way to preserve God's desires, whether it's in our family, in our neighborhoods, at our workplace, and in our government and how we vote. Where Christians are to be the light. Light in the Bible is typically referring to God or to righteousness or to living life God's way. Darkness is typically referring to sin or doing life our way and not God's way. And so he says that you are the light, not a light, not light, but the light. Well, Jesus said he was the light. And so Jesus came and he walked on this earth in his physical body in order to be the exact representation of who God is so that people would see who God was. It would be clear to everybody, what's God like? Well, look at Jesus. That's God. He's God. That's what he's like. And so it, it shines a light on God. It glorifies God. Anytime God reveals himself, it's his glory. Glory is revealing. Glory is shining a light on. And so now as Christians, that's how we're supposed to operate. We do life his way. When we do that, they say, oh, that's what God's like. Now, again, this is a struggle for us at times, right? I mean, it's not always easy to do life God's way, but we do it so that we can preserve our culture, society, to, to, have, um, to experience God's blessing on our culture and our society and to show others who God is, how he operates. When we love people, then they know that God must love them because we're representing him. Again, it begins in our home, it goes out into our families, it goes out into our neighborhoods, our workplaces, and into our country, certainly through how we vote. And so the, the question is, do the people that we're considering voting for, do the parties that they belong to, are they ones who will help us accomplish that? Or will they keep that from happening? Because we get it, right? There's... There's no politician or political party that's perfect, right? Right, okay, some of you guys believe so. Let I me mean, just tell you, this is my personal experience growing up uh, in the United States. There are no perfect politicians or political party. You know why I know that? Because none of us are perfect, all right? And so if, if you want to put a micros 
microscope on each of our lives, you want to shine a bright light on any of us in our past and things we've said and things we've done, how we've treated people, we'd all be looking pretty sad. Well, we have imperfect politicians, we have imperfect political parties, but the question is, which one helps us accomplish what God's called us to do to be the salt and light in this world? Because our Christianity is not just a segment of our lives, it's not just Sunday morning, it's every aspect of our life because we no longer represent ourselves, we represent Christ. So then what are the standards? What are the things that we should be uh, voting for? What, what best reflects who God is? And so there's three things I want to look at from what Scripture tells us. And the first one is this. We need to vote for life. God is a God of life. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Every person in this world, whether you like the person or you don't like the person, whether a politician or not, was created in the image of God. That means that they have value, that they deserve to be respected and honored. It means that in our interaction with them, we're not tearing people down. We're seeking to build people up and encourage people because that's what God does. He speaks truth, but we speak truth with gentleness and care and concern because everybody has value. And how that relates to voting is that that goes all the way down to the most vulnerable of us, and that is the unborn child. Psalm 139, you, uh, for you, speaking of God, formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. Whether the person is a follower of Christ or not, every one of us, at that point of conception, God is actively involved in forming that person. And for us to not uh, vote for life, for us to not care about life, even at the, the, the most vulnerable, is contrary to what Scripture would teach us. We are created in the image of God, and as people that are in the image of God, we should be responding like God, securing life, Supporting life, helping life, starting with the most vulnerable. And so the question is, is your candidate that you're voting for, is that political party going to help you accomplish that or not? And that's a decision that you have to make and that I have to make. I was saying this before, and I don't know if this is wise for me to say, but I think I was talking to Greg about this. Um, I, it's kind of weird for me. This is just me personally, okay? This is not a thus saith Lord. I'm just throwing something out. I don't, I don't care at all about debates. I, I don't even turn them on. I, I don't even really care about what people are saying about themselves in, in, in news and interviews and, and all that kind of... I, because I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm reading what they're saying what they personally say, their quotes, and I look at how they vote, and I look at what they've done, and so I, 
it's, for me, it's very easy to make it. I hear a lot of people who are undecided. I have no clue what undecided means. It's pretty clear to me, you know, what each of the political parties stand for, what each of the, I mean, not just, just the two, but all the different political parties that are out there, including the candidates, it's pretty easy to see. And again, especially if we're going to represent Christ and not ourselves. So that's pretty awesome. All right. The next one, vote for, uh, Christians should vote biblically. So vote for biblical families. Genesis 2, 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The very first institution, to use that word, the the very um, first foundation of society is one man, one woman, married together for a lifetime. That, that's the foundation. That this, this marriage is a, a, um, two people made in the image of God, and so there's a representation of who God is. And you know, we think about the Trinity and the interaction of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that unity that goes on there. And so we have a, a man and a woman and God, and that interaction that's supposed to go there, and that unity is supposed to be there and representing to the world around us. Uh, the sacrifice that Christ made for the church. I mean, if you go through Scripture, these are the different things that a marriage is supposed to represent. And so, as Christians, we should be voting for those people and those parties that help us represent God-given marriage. Now, people say, well, you know, it's, it, it's not that big of a deal, is it? I mean, really, is it, is it that big of a deal? Well, so I went up on Google, and uh, it's, you know, scary. And, uh, but I found some guys from Harvard who have done some studies. And so Harvard, bastion of wisdom, right? Um, let me just give you some quotes that happened here. W. Bradford Wilcox wrote an article in The Atlantic. And, and here's uh, so several quotes that I'm going to give you uh, in this article. And you can go search it and find it and that kind of stuff. So you can you know, do what I told you to do, research yourself. So don't take my word for it. A nuclear family. So um, father, mother, child. A nuclear family headed by two loving married parents remains the most stable and safest environment for raising children. The nuclear family headed by married parents remains a personal ideal even among men and women who harbor no moral objections to alternative family structures. So even people who say, you know, I mean, if you know, two men want to get married or two women want to get to marry, you know, whatever, um, we're good with that. But for me, they say that for me, I want it to be a nuclear family situation um, husband, wife, male, female. A federal report found that children living in a household with an unrelated adult were about nine times more likely to be physically, sexually, or emotionally abused than children raised in an intact nuclear family. Again, these are just studies, okay? This is just, just fact or information, all right? Harvard sociologist Robert Sampson tells us that neighborhoods with many two-parent families are much safer. In his own words... Family structure is one of the strongest, if not the strongest, predictors of variation in urban violence across cities in the United States. So they're finding that when you have a, a mother, a father, then you're going to, and there's a bunch of them in a, in a community, that community is going to be safer than ones in which there isn't a nuclear family. Again, you know, here we're having reports showing us what God said. It's It's interesting. Harvard colleagues, uh, econo- economists Raj Chetty and Nathaniel Hendren 
Black boys are more likely to achieve upward economic mobility if there are more black fathers in the neighborhood and more married couples as well. Again, the nuclear family, the impact it has on, on people. And I, just, I didn't pick on just um, black boys, but I went on and talked about in, in all the different um, races, if you want to call it, all different pigment colors. Because <laughs> again, there's, there's not different colors, there's only variations of pigment. We understand that, right? So when we talk about different brown, black, white, pigment, all the same pigment, different variations, just FYI. Um, and it, it, that's happening in every single variation of pigment. Okay? Children raised in communities with high percentage of single mothers are less likely to move up. In other words, it takes a village but of married people to raise the odds that a poor child will have a shot at the American dream. So just something that I should have mentioned this in the first service. It just popped into my head this service. But so, so we have this, you know, we, we, we get this. But in reality, we do face a world where we don't have nuclear family in every situation. Even more so how much the church needs to come around people. Come around single mothers, single fathers. And going back to the whole protecting the unborn child, to come around those who have have had abortions and to encourage them and to love them and help them understand God's love for them and forgiveness for them. How much more that our church family, this is a little bit off my nose, how much more we as a church family, we need to be ready to respond that way as Christ called us to. But again, so we need to vote for the biblical family. We have organizations trying to tear down our families. We have political parties, politicians, Voting on things that tear the family down. Do you know where your political party stands? Do you know where your candidate stands? You have a responsibility to show the world, to show your neighbors, to show our government what God looks like, and he cares about the nuclear family. And the last one is we should vote for law and order. Uh, mainstream media seems to be not covering this as much as they were. I, I don't know if you know this or not, but I don't just watch the mainstream media. I, I look at other, I guess what they call alternative news, which is funny to me that they would call it that. It's kind of knocking it down as if it's not good you know, or right. There are still today riots going on in our bigger cities. Do you realize that? Well over 100 days of it. We don't hear about it. Law and order is something that God has set up. So Romans 13, every person is being subjection to the governing authorities. Notice how he doesn't say which one. When, when the first century church was reading this, they were reading this and understanding, oh, dictatorship. I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to be under the rule of this guy who I don't like who's oppressing Christians. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. The people who are, who are in these violent protests are people who are opposing God. 
And the people who are allowing it to happen, the people who are not standing up and saying enough is enough, they're opposing God. They're not opposing me or my political position or my candidate's position. They're opposing God. So what are Christians, how are Christians supposed to respond to that if you're going against what God wants? Because if we go against what God wants, we miss that blessing as a nation, even if somebody doesn't really care about who God is. As the, the band comes up, let me just close with this one last point. And so don't check out yet. This is probably the most important point. And that's this. Again, we're representing Christ, right? We're salt and light. We're going to preserve, God's going to preserve society through us, and we're going to shine a light on who God is. And so when we vote, when you get into that voting booth or in front of that computer or you fill something out and send it in, whatever you're doing, I want to challenge you to vote motivated by love. Because this is what Jesus said. He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Every time we operate, every time we do something in our lives, including voting, we are to love God in it and we're to love others in it. And so this is how that plays out. Love is looking out for the best of somebody else, no matter what it might cost you. And so we go in and we vote for the person who's going to help us best accomplish what God wants us to do. And some of the people in our lives are not going to like it. They're going to find out who we voted for, and they're not going to like it. But we go ahead and do it. Why? Because even if they don't like God, even if they don't like our decision, we love them, and we want the best for them. And so then when God does his work in our country, whether they like him or not, they're still going to be blessed. Isn't that awesome? When, When God does a work in our society, it impacts everybody, not just the Christians. In fact, um, it says this in Proverbs, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. The king's favor is toward a servant who acts wisely, but his anger is toward him who acts shamefully. Our motivation should be, God, we want you to exalt our nation, not for our purposes, but so that people can see how awesome you are. Not only in our country, but in the countries around that we would say, God, exalt our nation. Help us to represent you well. Help us to show who you are. We don't want to be a disgrace. We want your favor to be upon us. So we vote wisely, biblically. And in that, even the people who don't know who he is or don't want to know or whatever, they experience his blessing. And when they experience his blessing, what can we do? Tell them about who God is and allow them to make a decision whether they're going to follow him or not. Not force it on them, but to encourage them to turn their life over to Christ. Dave.